Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the Detroit Tiger legend and World Series champ, Lance Parrish. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with the Detroit Tiger legend. He's an eight-time All-Star. He won six Silver Sluggers. And, uh, he was a World Series champion in 1984. Ladies and gentlemen, Lance Parrish. Lance, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, happy to do it. My pleasure. Tell me about the Orange Catchers, man. I've never asked you. Where did it come from? <laughs> Well, you know, that's a pretty good question. Actually, uh, my my understanding is it seems like a lot of these inventions came from the Dodger organization. Um, you know, I think the, uh, the throat protector came from the Dodgers. I want to say that the, uh, the target glove, which is what it was called back when it was uh, first introduced, was something that the Dodgers came up with. Um, I can't verify that for sure, but I had heard that rumor. But uh, I do know that uh, I was one of the few guys that did wear it. Um, You know, Rawlings asked me to continue wearing it, even though I was going to wear it anyway, um, because it helped with their marketing campaign. And it's it's kind of funny here in Michigan, everybody that uh, followed the Tigers back when I played, uh, first thing they asked me, is questions about the orange glove. So, <laughs> and you know, the re- I, there was no specific reason why I started wearing it other than, you know, I just liked the concept of it. Um, I figured, you know, people always complaining about they couldn't see a target. Well, I figured there's no way that they could not see that. So, uh, that yeah. What was, what was the initial feedback from the staff, from your pitchers? You know, I never heard anybody complain about it. They, uh, they were all on board with it. You know, I didn't hear anybody make any snide remarks or, uh, you know, thought that it was kind of a Bush league looking deal. Anyway, you know, color was starting to uh, make its way into major league baseball at that time. Anyway, I remember when, uh, when I started getting my catcher's equipment from all-star sporting goods company and uh, our clubhouse guy, Jim Schmeichel, when I got to spring training, he goes, do I have some gear for you? And, you know, when we were on the road, since we had orange as part of our uh, color scheme on the road, um, when I got on the road, he broke out catching gear that was all orange. My shin guards were orange. My chest protector was orange. <laughs> I had the black glove with the orange, um, you know, targeting around the uh, outside of it. And, you know, I, I do recall one time in, Kansas City, George Brett walking up to the plate for the first time and laughing. Saying, you look like a big orange pumpkin back here. <laughs> it is amazing, you know, where where the game's gone. And you were you were at the very beginning of, like you said, bringing some color into the game. I remember as a kid, I mean, it was just like you wear black spikes. Uh, 
remember the Cincinnati Reds of the 70s. I mean, it was black spikes and no logo. Sure. You couldn't have, yeah. you know, what right. the what the manufacturer was on it. We went from that to fast forward to 2022. I mean, everybody's got everything. Well, and now you've every got, you know, you custom made everything. You design what you want. Anything yeah. goes. Yeah. So, you know, don't right. forget Sparky came over from Cincinnati. And, you know, I know that there was a lot of complaints from the Cincinnati guys about the fact that, you know, everybody wanted to try to get some kind of a, a monetary uh, reward for wearing sporting good company shoes or whatever. And Sparky said, you know, you have to, bl- I don't care whose shoes you wear, but they're all black. You have to black out the Nike swoosh or the Adidas sign on it or whatever they wore. Everything had to be black. So, you know, they put up a little argument about that, but Sparky always seemed to win in the end. All right. You were born in Pennsylvania. I want to hear about Lance Parrish as a kid. What were you like as a kid? I know you're a baseball player, football player. Give me a little snapshot of your childhood. Well, actually, um, I mean, I was pretty active. Um, I was born in Pennsylvania. Both of my parents grew up uh, either in Pittsburgh, my mom right outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, my parents met in the Marine Corps, believe it or not. They were both Marines when they uh, when they met each other. Um, when my dad got out of the Marine Corps, uh, he joined the police department there in Pennsylvania and um, had to walk a beat, I guess, in the snow, in the wintertime, and I think he got tired of that. So he ended up looking for a place, uh, according to him, he wanted to move somewhere where it, he never had to look at snow again. So ironically, end up uh, we had some relatives that lived out in Southern California. He flew out to L.A. to go through the Sheriff's Academy in Los Angeles while my mother and myself and my sister stayed back until uh, he graduated from the Academy. And when he graduated, we all flew out there to meet him. And we actually flew out there on my sixth birthday. So even though I was born in Pennsylvania, I basically grew up in Southern California. Um, you know, I played sports. There's no doubt about that. I was uh, played football, basketball, and baseball in, uh, in high school. And, um, you know, and enjoyed playing all of them. I, uh, I actually did pretty well in football. I had... Uh, some letters of intent to go to different schools, went on a few recruiting trips. I ended up uh, signing a letter of intent to go to UCLA to uh, play football there, actually. The the deal back then was because you could not get a full scholarship um, for baseball. They were going to allow me to play football and baseball. And if I was on a full scholar, or if I was on a, uh, a scholarship for football, I would get a full ride. So, you know, that made things a little more appealing to me that way. You know, I had gone to uh, USC and UCLA, Nebraska, Arizona State, and Cal Berkeley, actually, um, on recruiting trips. But I ended up settling in at UCLA. Um, you know, I, I – just the guys that that were recruiting me, I had a, a great time with. They were all awesome guys. Dick Vermeule was the head baseball coach. 
Um, Gary Adams was just uh, actually coming over from UC Irvine and was going to be uh, make his debut. I think my first year, if I would have went to UCLA in my in my freshman year, he obviously stayed there a long time. But uh, <clears throat> you know, then I was drafted by the uh, by the Tigers. So the rest is history. That is interesting because when I saw the UCLA, I mean, I know I know quite a bit about uh, the Parrish family and, and yourself in particular, but I I didn't know that about UCLA. Um, nope. And we just I recently had Dick Vermeil on the show, and you're right, he was there, only there for a couple of years and it, prepping for this, Lance. I was thinking, wow, would Vermeil have been his coach? And then I I figured it out, he definitely would have been. Um, yeah. But you, so you go to Walnut High School, you're playing all three. You sign your letter of intent, like you said, for the for the uh, the scholarship situation, just to to get his max to max it out. And if you play both, you end up being a first round pick, 16th overall with the Detroit Tigers. Um, I would t- how how much going into the draft? How much how much intel did you have? And and where was where was your mind? Were you, did you pretty much know? I know I'm going to be a first round pick. I'm going to sign professionally or going into the draft. Were you still, were you still kind of up in the air and wait to see what happened? Well, let me tell you, times, uh, times have changed and things were, things were a lot different back when I was in high school. And now to be perfectly honest with you, I was very naive to the whole process. I, I enjoyed, uh, I went to a small school in, uh, in Walnut, Walnut High School. You know, it had only it had just been built um, a few years before I had actually gotten there as a, as a freshman. So it hadn't even been around there that long, and we didn't have a, a whole lot of students, you know, that went to it. So we were, a, a, I think, a 2A school in Southern California. So, uh, I mean, I played, I played. I played basketball, football, and baseball. I, I just kept busy. I, I loved to play. I kept doing it. Um, I had no concept of, you know, professional baseball. I mean, I watched, you know, a few big league games on TV when they were on. Uh, my dad used to listen to, uh, you know, the Dodgers, Vince Scully and Jerry Dot, uh, you know, broadcasting uh, Dodger games when he was out doing something in the yard. So I would listen to the games with him, listen to a few Angel games. But, you know, the whole, the whole idea of playing professional baseball just, you know, never hit me or anything else for that matter. I mean, yeah, I had signed a letter of intent to go to UCLA. Um, I mean, how prepared was I for that? I don't know. I, uh, I just played and, you know, took things as they came along. But um, when I was drafted, in fact, one of the, uh, one of the coaches in our league, um, uh, one of the baseball coaches came up to me uh, before the end of our regular season, my senior year and said, you know what, I'm going to tell you something said, you are, you're going to be a first round draft pick. Now, you know, and they, to be quite honest with you, he's the first guy that I had ever heard that from. I mean, I, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know if I was, you know, good enough to play or, or they liked me or what. I mean, I know there was a, a lot of scouts coming to watch our games, but you know, it wasn't like I sat down with any of them. They told me they were there to watch me. Um, I just heard that occasionally there were some scouts in the stands. But when he told me that, look, you're going to be a number one pick, and I'm telling you right now, do not accept anything less than $100,000. You know, 
And back then, when it, when he said that, it was like, you know, like he could have said, you know, don't accept anything less than a million dollars. It's like a hundred thousand dollars. Are you kidding me? You know, I couldn't even comprehend that much money. Nor could I comprehend being a number one draft pick or any of the other stuff that went along with it. But as you know, things progressed and the draft came around. You know, I had I had done a few workouts, local workouts with different teams in Southern California. I worked out for the Phillies, I think, the Angels at Anaheim Stadium, and um, I want to say the uh, the Padres, maybe the Reds. I don't even remember. It's been so long. But, you know, there was only a few guys that were invited to these workouts. I do recall one of the workouts I was I was at, um, we went to a local baseball field, and it was uh, myself, Lonnie Smith, and Gary Templeton, just the three of us. And, you know, we went through the whole process of uh, taking BP and fielding balls and me throwing a second base from behind the plate, you know, maybe making some throws from the outfield and, you know, just doing everything that they wanted to see us do. And then it came time to run the 60 yard dash. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, here I am running against Gary Templeton and Lonnie Smith. It was like they beat me by about 30 yards. So I obviously wasn't that impressive in doing that, but uh, I, I did have a very good workout. I thought when I went to Anaheim stadium, I mean, I remember, uh, Whoever was there, uh, one of the guys that was there when I was throwing from behind the plate told me, look, if you can throw the ball down to second base in under two seconds, he goes, you could pretty much throw anybody out in the major leagues. And I mean, every throw I made was under two seconds. And, um, you know, I was hitting balls out of the ballpark. I thought I had a great workout, hitting the ball good. And then when the, the draft came around, I was really hoping – you know, at that things, you know, at that point, things had built up, and I thought, well, you know, I, I am going to get drafted. I have no idea where, but I hope the Angels draft me because I just wanted to, I wanted to play for the Angels. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, uh, I'm in my, I'm at school, in one of my classes, and uh, my baseball coach came to the door and knocked on the door and asked the teacher if uh, he could talk to me out in the hall. So I went out in the hall and he goes, he looks at me and he goes, well, he goes, uh, he grabbed my hand and shook my hand. He goes, I just want to congratulate you. He goes, you are the number one pick of the Detroit Tigers. And I was like, I was kind of in a state of shock almost. It was like the Detroit Tigers. I mean, and I said that I was very naive to the whole deal. I mean, I didn't really even know anything about the Detroit Tigers or where they were even at. So it was like, you gotta be kidding me. And I, you know, so then I was kind of backpedaled like, well, what happened to the angels? And what, you know, and he was like, Hey, don't worry about that. You're a, you're a number one pick. You're with a great organization. And, you know, as things worked out, you know, I obviously ended up signing with them, but uh, you know, I, I couldn't believe that, you know, as good as I thought I did in that workout that, you know, the angels passed me by. Cause I think they had the number three pick in the draft that year, the number two pick, something like that. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Thanks, Boone. 
College basketball fans, join the action on the court during the biggest tournament of the year with DraftKings Sportsbook. Turn your team's victory into your own big win. New customers can bet $5 on any team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. It's that simple. If they win, you win. Everyone wins. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still join the College Hoops action with DraftKings Pools. Everyone can play free pools all March long for a shot at a share of over $250,000 in prizes. Simply join a pool and answer questions like, who will make it to the next round, and who will hit the most three-pointers, then track your results. Simply download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now, use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, bet $5 on any college hoops team to win, and get $200 in free bets if they do. If they win, you win with promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. 21 plus restrictions apply. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling, and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Wyoming, 1-800-NEXT-STEP, Arizona, 1-800-522-4700, Colorado, New Hampshire, 888-789-7777, visit HTTP colon forward slash forward slash ccpg.org slash chat connecticut 1-800-BETS-OFF iowa 1-877-770-STOP-7867 louisiana 877-8-H-O-P-E-N-Y text H-O-P-E-N-Y 467-369 new york visit obgr.org oregon call text in tennessee red line 1-800-889-9789 tennessee or 1-888-532-3500, Virginia, 21+, plus, 18+, plus, New Hampshire, Wyoming, physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming only. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See HCTP colon forward slash forward slash DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. And now back to my interview with Lance Parrish. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. You know, we always we always think, like you said, that reaction right there, the Tigers, that's the last team. on, And it seems more times than not uh, when guys come on the show, that's their reaction to the draft. It's like the last team on earth I thought I was going to get picked but was, was X. And I had the same experience. I got, you know, I got drafted out of high school and I ended up going to college, but but it was uh, the Minnesota Twins. And I remember the Twins calling me going, the Twins? You know, because they, <laughs> in your little process, your high school season, you have scouts coming around. And, you know, I, back then it, it was the mid-80s and scouts would talk to me once in a while. And I'd, I'd make note of what team they were from. And certain teams uh, talked to me a lot at that high school, but never the Twins. And all of a sudden, I get the phone call. It's the Twins. Same thing out of college. I get that call. It's the Seattle Mariners. <laughs> they were the last. If you would have said, okay, what are your top 25 teams you think are going to draft you? The Mariners would not have been on that list. And, and sure enough, <laughs> they're on the phone on the other end said, you've been drafted. So it's amazing how how we think. And, and little things like you go into this Angels camp and, and you know, your eyes, you came back, you're like, I kicked ass there. That's probably a good yeah. thing. And then you're like, what happened to the Angels? You know, who are these Detroit Tigers? And and uh, the rest is history. You mentioned Lonnie Smith and, and Gary Templeton. Uh, that was a pretty big draft. Willie Wilson was in that draft. Molly, Paul Molitor, uh, our buddy yeah. Sut- 
big Sutcliffe was in that draft. The the yeah, great right. Philly, the great field, Philly Dale, uh, Murphy, Dale, was Dale Murphy was in that draft. Yeah. Uh, so you're off to the yeah, minor leagues. Some, uh, quality guys. You're off to the minor leagues. How was that for you? It, I never had that experience. I never went from from varsity baseball to professional baseball. And, and you know, we've been yeah. around and we've seen a lot now. You you've been in. The, doing a lot of coaching and managing at the minor league level, coaching in the big leagues. Um, so you see the difference. It is much different than varsity baseball. How was it for you going to that first assignment? I'm assuming you went to, to a rookie ball level. Well, you know, the whole process, the whole process was uh, pretty overwhelming. I mean, from the, uh, from the draft negotiating, you know, you know, when I ended up signing, um, the guy that um, they sent over to uh, to negotiate with me was a guy by the name of Jack Deutsch, and um, you know he uh, he came over and uh, offered me, you know, and, and you know it's all relative. I mean, uh, you know, I'm throwing money figures out there, but you know, it's so far surpassed now from what they were offering us back then. But you know, he came and offered me. Uh, sixty thousand dollars or whatever and um you know and i'll be very honest with you i didn't really know what i wanted to do for sure i mean did i want to go to to college and play football and baseball um did i want to play professional baseball i i i honestly for a moment in time i wasn't really sure exactly what i wanted to do so when he came over to the house and i didn't have an agent i mean my dad was there with me we sat in the living room and, uh, you know, he made this offer, you know, we had a nice conversation. And, um, when he was all said and done with it, I said, well, I said, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to say yes or no on the spot right then. Anyway, I said, you know, that's a, a great offer. And, and, you know, I'd like to think about it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just not ready to make my mind up right now. So he goes, well, I'm going to tell you right now. He goes, that's as they typically do that's the best offer that, you know, not going to get any higher. That's all the money I got. And that's what it is. So you either take it or leave it, but it's not going up anymore. I go, Hey, I understand that. I go, you know, I just, I'm not really ready to make an answer or make a, a call on this right now. So right then and there, my dad says to him, Hey, do you mind if we go in the back room and just, you know, talk for a minute? And he goes, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So my dad, my dad and I get up and we go in into the back into his bedroom. He closes the door and he goes, so, you know, he, as soon as he sits down on the bed, he looks at me and he goes, $60,000. He goes, you know how long it would take me to make that? <laughs> I'm just like, you know, it's like he's putting a pressure on me. I was like, wow. I go, uh, I go, Hey, I, I know. I go, it's a lot of money. I go, you know, I'm just, I'm not sure what I want to do and I'm not ready to make a decision right now. So, you know, uh, he goes, well, I'm just telling you, he goes, that's a lot of money. And he goes, if I was you, I'd think long and hard before I, I go, well, it's not like he's just gonna, you know, if I don't accept it, you know, walk away. And there, I said, I, you know, I, I just need to think about it. So, you know, we went and hashed it back and forth and we came back out and I said, well, you know, I appreciate the offer and I, I'm just, I need some time to think about it. And so, you know, we ended the conversation and he left, when he comes back a couple of days later and he goes, okay, uh, 
they've given me permission to raise it to 67.5. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just laughed. And, and, you know, at that point, I was ready to sign anyway, even if he didn't say 67.5. But, you know, he did, and I took it. And, you know, so then it was like, okay, so now I've signed the contract. And, you know, in a few days, because it was, uh, you know, it was in June, I, uh, I had to go to Florida. And I had never been to Florida. I would really never been anywhere um, for any length of time without, you know, going somewhere with my parents. I mean, I was, I had just turned 18 because my birthday's in June. So I had just turned 18 in June. Um, and the next thing I know, I've, I'm on a red eye flying to Tampa. And they gave me instructions. When you get to Tampa, you got to go outside the terminal and get in a, uh, a shuttle van and tell the guy that you need to go to Lakeland and you're going to Tigertown. You know, they got to drop you off at Fetcher Hall, which is where all the, you know, minor leagues, the minor league dorm was. And, and I'm just like, I was like overwhelmed with all of this. It was like, wow. So I remember flying all night. I don't think I slept at all because I was a nervous wreck. And uh, I got into Tampa in the morning, searched out the, uh, the shuttle guy, got in. He was, you know, drove me all the way to Lakeland. Took a while because he had to make a few stops along the way. And I got in there, and I mean, I was fried. And plus, when I walked outside the airport, it felt like the humidity was like a thousand percent, which, as you well know, it's not very humid in Southern California. So when I, well, I got my first taste of that humidity in Florida, it was like, oh my gosh, about knocked me over when I walked out the door. But when I got into uh, the dormitory, the Fetzer Hall dormitory in Lakeland, Florida, where uh, the Tiger Spring training camp is, the guy checked me in. I went into my room, and I was so tired. I just, you know, threw my suitcases and everything over in the corner, and I just laid in the bed and passed out. And it, I, honestly, I felt like I had just closed my eyes. And the next thing I knew, somebody was banging on my door and come barging in. And I, I'm like, you know, what? I didn't even know who the guy was. And it was our farm director, Hoot Evers. My introduction to Hoot Evers. And he's looking at me laying on the bed, and he's going, what the hell are you doing in bed? And I'm like, what? I, I've been flying all night. I just, you know, I just got here, and, you know, I didn't sleep all night. And then he goes, hey, you got to work out to attend. He goes, you need to get your butt over to the clubhouse and get your uniform and get your stuff and, you know, we have a workout that's starting in like a half an hour. So, I, you know, that was my introduction right there. And the bad thing was is I had – they gave me a pair of uh, um, uh, wool long sleeves to put on uh, and an undershirt under my uh, uniform. And I went out there and, you know, they signed me as a third baseman. I didn't sign as a catcher. I, they signed me as a third baseman. So I went out there in my – New uniform with my nice wool long sleeves on, and it was like 90 degrees out with, you know, 100% humidity. And they proceeded to hit me about a thousand ground balls at third. I thought I was going to pass out. So that was my introduction to professional baseball my first day, and I freaking hated it. <laughs> I was ready. That I was ready to jump on a plane and head home right after that. Lakeland, Florida. I mean, that's one of the true. I don't know if any other organization can boast 
Lakeland, Florida. I mean, the Detroit Tigers to this day are in Lakeland, Florida, and it's Tiger Town. And like you said, you had the minor league dorms. That's pretty unique uh, from an organizational. It's turned into a great complex. Yeah, I haven't been down there in years, but I mean, you you were you came up through that complex. I played there, uh, and it's still there. Well, it's pretty awesome. It's a far cry from when I was first there. I mean, uh, if anybody's familiar with grass types, they had St. Augustine grass on the minor league fields, which which is real bumpy and lumpy and thick. There was those fire ant hills everywhere. Um. There were no fences. It was just wide open, um, hot as all get out. You know, I mean, obviously in in today's world with the baseball fields, they're all, you know, the grass is perfect. The fields are manicured. It's, you know, what they have right now uh, at Tiger Town since they uh, just renovated everything a few years ago and dumped like fifty million dollars into it. They you know, renovated the stadium. They uh, renovated the minor league complex. They have a uh, an entire astroturfed uh, um, field. Um, it's just beautiful. The batting cages are unbelievable. You know, I I don't know what the batting cages were like when you came along, but when I first went there, um, we had one outdoor batting cage. And it uh, obviously didn't have a cover over it. Um, you were at the mercy of the weather, whatever that happened to be. And uh, the home plate area, the dirt around home plate was like the sand that you would find at, at the beach. It was it was horrible. And now they have, I mean, state-of-the-art batting cages in just about every, I'm sure every uh, spring training complex and and a whole bunch of them and they're all indoor and some of them are air conditioned. I mean, it's, Oh, they're, they're great. I, I, you know, I tell these minor league kids today, I said, you know, we were lucky to get our, our, uh, our equipment in a bag on a, on a nail, hanging on a nail. I said, we didn't have these big lockers. I I go to all these complexes and and they're so nice. And you know, it, it has changed. I mean, I guess from, from my dad's generation, you know, it wasn't, as nice as it was when I was coming up and when I was coming up certainly isn't as nice as it is today, but uh, yeah, it was definitely, definitely a different time. You mentioned as a third baseman, you just like dad came up as third baseman. I don't know when my dad actually made that transition to catcher. I think maybe double a, when did they make that change? How long they let you go play third before, before that, uh, that, I guess it had to be a talk. Lance, uh, we need you in, in so-and-so's office. We're going to make you a catcher. And, and how did you feel about that? Well, I'll be honest with you. You know, I had caught, you know, since the time I was in Little League. You know, my very first year in Little League, I remember, because everybody always asked me, you know, how did you get started catching? Well, nobody else on my Little League team wanted to catch. And not that I had ever caught before, but I said, I'll, I'll do it. So that, you know, that was my introduction to catching. And I caught from Little League all the way through my senior year in high school. So when they drafted me as a third baseman, I was more, probably more surprised by that, you know, because I my primary positions were I pitched and probably, you know, I pitched because I could throw hard. It wasn't like I had great stuff, but I could throw hard and I, and I um, caught and, you know, I played other positions if, 
um, somebody else was hurt or they needed somebody to play because I was, you know, pretty decent athlete. So I moved around. But my primary spots were were catching and pitching. And my senior year, I played third base because we didn't have anybody to play there. And we did have somebody else that knew how to catch. So I, you know, bopped back and forth between third and catching and pitching. And and I guess the times the the Tigers came to watch me, to scout me, I was playing third base. So, you know, naturally they drafted me as a third baseman. But um, after my rookie year uh, in Bristol, Virginia, which I have to give some props to my um, 1974 Appalachian League champion Bristol team. Um, our record was 52 and 17. We, you know, as you well know, we played a, a 70 game schedule in rookie ball, and uh, we had one game rained out that we never made up. But we were 52 and 17. We we're pretty dang good. And uh, but I guess I wasn't that impressive at third base because right after that, when I went to instructional ball, our farm director, Hoot Evers again, came up to me and said, uh, so here's the deal. We're going to put you, we're going to move you from third base and put you behind the plate, which I was fine with. I mean, I had, you know, been catching, seemed like my whole life. And he goes, and we want you to switch hit. And I was like, switch hit. And he goes, the way we see it, if you learn how to hit left-handed, there's no telling how many home runs you'll hit with that short porch in right field in Detroit, which I had never seen Detroit, you know, anyway. But he was telling me there was a short porch there, and he thought that, you know, I, I if I worked at it, that I could get the hang of it. So I went from playing third base and rookie ball, batting right-handed, which I had done my entire career, to moving the next year, and working on it in instructional ball after my rookie year, catching, switch hitting. And I can tell you <laughs> that I wasn't real good at switch hitting. Um, you know, well, how about you know, this? You ever, you ever just tell them, say, listen, listen, I'm your first round pick. <laughs> Why are we no, changing funny. all this? I thought you liked me as is. You bring that up. Um, a couple of years ago when I was managing up in West Michigan, Dave Littlefield was uh, head of our minor leagues at the time. And he uh, brought that up. So I, you know, basically told him the same story. And he started laughing. He goes, I can't even imagine. He goes, there's no way that any farm director could get away with doing that today. Taking your number one draft pick, kid right out of high school, and telling him, number one switching his position and having yeah. him switch hit <laughs> i go up well, that's what they did and i said and it lasted one year i said i switch hit the entire time that i was in the florida state league i think i hit 220 with five home runs and i said and then right after that year i went to instructional ball again and they told me you're not switch hitting anymore and i go you gotta be kidding me i go I was just, I was just feeling like I was getting the hang of it. You know, when I first started, I wasn't able to pull the ball. Everything I hit was the other way. I mean, I was just trying to concentrate on making contact and, you know, and it wasn't until the end of the season where I started learning how to, you know, turn on the ball and try to elevate it to, you know, to right field. But as soon as the season was over, that was it. They cut the cord on that. And I uh, went back to hitting right-handed and uh, I moved up to uh, moved up to Double A, 
And and that's another thing. I mean, when I when I played rookie ball, I think my batting average uh, in rookie ball was like two thirteen. I mean, don't don't hold me on that. It was something like that. That wasn't very good. Lance, two thousand twenty two. That wouldn't be bad. <laughs> huh? Two thousand twenty two. That wouldn't be bad if you got twenty homers. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hit eleven <laughs> homers in a seventy game season, and I guess that was you know pretty good for him. So uh, the next year I went to A ball. I hit like think uh, two twenty with five home runs, and I moved up to Double A the next year. And I think I hit uh, gosh two two something in the low two hundreds again, and I hit I uh, had fourteen home runs. But you know the point. The reason I'm bringing that up is because I've always told everybody. If I had been playing today with the numbers that I was putting up back then, I'd have never got out of A ball, I don't think. But after after my double A season, which we ended up winning the uh Southern League championship that year, uh, even though I didn't have, you know, great numbers, you know, we had a pretty good team, obviously. And then the next year I went to uh Evansville, Indi- Indiana and played triple A ball in the American Association. And I, I finally kind of broke out and had a pretty good year. I hit close to 280 with uh, 25 home runs and 90-something RBIs, and I was a September call-up at, uh, at the end of that season. And, um, and then I stayed in the big leagues from that point on. Yeah, 77 was your call. Did you play with Fidrets in the minor leagues? I did. I, I'm, lo- in, I'm uh, looking for a Fidrets story. He's – He's like a unicorn that you never hear about and, and the people that actually played with him. You got anything? Well, he was on that uh, Bristol team that uh, we won the Appalachian League, and uh, he was on my uh, A-ball team in Lakeland the next year, and then he kind of jumped, hop-skipped up to the big leagues. And Well, you know, you know I mean, the, the person that you see on TV with all the antics and you know, them making reference to talking to the baseball. I'm not so sure he was talking to the baseball as much as he was just talking to himself. He would always try to motivate himself and talk to himself and tell himself what he needed to do and, you know, bopping around the mound. And I mean, he was an awesome guy and, uh, you know, a lot of fun. He just had, you know, quirky little habits. But uh, when we were playing together in Lakeland, I I remember, you know, everybody's always scrambling to try to find a place to stay. You know, we had, when I was in rookie ball, we had five guys living in a one-bedroom apartment. You know, that's how difficult it was to find a place to stay and how difficult it was to afford a place to stay for guys. So we just all would pile into whatever we could pile into. And then the next year, you know, a couple of us that um, we – kind of went off and, and found different apartments here and there. Well, Bird found a trailer park, you know, almost on the outskirts of town in Lakeland. And he didn't even have a car. I don't know how, and he, but he hitchhiked <laughs> everywhere he went or he bummed a ride from somebody. So he went out into a trailer park and found like one of those, you know, those round looking Winnebago <laughs> looking yeah. trailers that they pull on the back, of, you know, you're, it looks like somebody's uh, station wagon or something from back in the 60s. Well, he found one of those for dirt cheap, and he moved it. That's what he lived in the, the whole time we were in Lakeland. You know, a few of us would go out and visit him from time to time, and uh, 
it's like you had to bend over when you were walking around in there. There was no room to, to get around. But I can't tell you how many times we would be driving around and he'd be, he'd have his uh, high top, purple high top shoes on with no laces. He'd have his Daisy Duke looking shorts on with no shirt. And he'd be standing out on the side of the road hitchhiking everywhere he went. That was classic. That was totally bird for the entire uh, 75 season in Lakeland, Florida. (laughs) Wow. He's a lot of fun, though, I will say. 77, you get to the big leagues. What's that? 77, you get to the big leagues. You only get 46 ABs. That's your your call-up date. You you start off with Ralph Houck. Sparky doesn't come for another couple years. Um, my question, because you're you're one of the, kind of the pioneers in the game. You know, I've since the second half of my career, and I wish I'd have learned this earlier. I I become a gym rat, but Lance Parrish always been a gym rat from the get go. Since the time I met you, a little kid running around watching you, and uh, when you and Dad would, you know. You'd be in town playing against whoever dad was playing for at the time. Where did that come from? And and you you started it when it was kind of taboo in the game. You know, nowadays, obviously, everybody everybody's doing it. But for a while there, uh, it was kind of frowned upon. Like, wait a minute. I, I, I did a little prep and I saw Sparky uh, even at, at, at first. Well, first of all, he wanted you to paint your shoes black. But uh, he was did you guys get at odds a little bit over the weight training? Well, more than a little bit. <laughs> um, you you know, were ahead of your was, time. Uh, that was a mentality that was uh, developed when I was in high school playing football. I mean, I, two of two of my coaches in high school that I was probably closer to than any other coaches were big weightlifting fanatics, and they, you know, got me involved in it and uh, had me convinced that it didn't matter what sport you played. You know, there were benefits to be had by getting bigger and stronger. You know, um, obviously there were uh, things that went along with that. I mean, I, I always tried to maintain my flexibility. It wasn't like I just went in the weight room and, you know, lifted for a few hours and, and didn't do anything else. I mean, I, I stretched. In fact, I was probably one of the, if not the most flexible guy on our team uh, because of that, I, I never had any muscle pulls or any of that. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I felt that, uh, that was something that would help me, um, get to the big leagues and stay in the big leagues and be productive through a long season was to try to get as strong as I could get and, uh, see what happened. So, um, you know, I, I obviously didn't have any issues with Ralph Hauk or, you know, after Ralph left, uh, um, Les Moss was uh, was my manager. He was actually my double A and triple A manager. Les Moss was, and then uh, when Ralph Houck stepped down, um, they made Les Moss the manager of the Tigers, and he remained the manager for all of a few months until he got fired and replaced by Sparky Anderson, which was extremely disappointing to me. Um, I always have said, and I'll continue to say to this day, it wasn't for Les Moss I'd have never made it to the big leagues because I thought Les Moss was not only a great manager, he was a great teacher. And uh, he was an ex-catcher. And um, when I was struggling, uh, you know, in double A, 
when he became my manager that first year, and then when I moved on to AAA, he moved up to AAA the next year, you know, with our group. You know, he had me coming in early all the time and uh, doing extra work. I mean, all the time, working on my hitting and my catching. But, you know, I needed that. And if it wasn't for that, and I was very thankful that there was somebody like that in the organization that was willing to, you know, do the things for me that needed to be done to make me a better baseball player. And, uh, you know, it obviously paid off. So, you know, yeah, I was when, when they fired him and uh, hired Sparky, it wasn't that I had anything against Sparky. I was just really pissed that they fired less because I thought they never really gave him an opportunity. And he had proved himself to be a very good manager in the minor leagues. And I felt like he didn't really get an opportunity to show what he could do at the major league level. But, you know, Sparky, uh, you know, came with a lot of accolades and, you know, they, you know, tried to say that Les wasn't a very good communicator with the media and blah, blah, blah. So that was, you know, reason enough for them to get rid of him. But, you know, I, I still really felt like that, you know, um, he got the short end of the stick on that. But, you know, he went on to, um, just to show you what a great teacher he was, he went on to become the uh, pitching coach for the Houston Astros when they had uh, Nolan Ryan and Mike Scott and Danny Darwin and all those guys. And they all, and I played with Danny Darwin um, my, the last year of my career in Toronto, and he couldn't say enough nice things about Les Moss, what a great pitching coach he was, what a great guy he was. So I was happy to hear that. But, uh, but anyway, back to the weightlifting, I, uh, you know, I just felt like that was, uh, something that would benefit me. Um, when Sparky came over, obviously we butted heads quite a bit. In fact, one of the, uh, winners that I went home, um, I think it was, uh, before the 82 season. So it would have been the, uh, the winter of 81 and 82 that I was home working out. I worked out with Brian Downing. I mean, we hooked up through a mutual friend of ours and, you know, we were talk about gym rats. We worked out like maniacs. And, um, before, before that winter, Sparky went around to everybody in the clubhouse and assigned everybody a reporting weight to, to uh, spring training, which, you know, nobody had ever done before, but he came up to me and said, um, your reporting weight is 220. <laughs> now Sparky's a nutritionist. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like 220. I go, I, you know, I've been catching the whole year. He goes, I don't even, I don't even weigh 220 right now. And you're going to, he goes, well, I'm telling you, he goes, you come to spring training at 220. Cause I think it's going to make you, you know, uh, better and more mobile and all that, you know. And I was just like, I just said, yeah, okay, what, whatever. And I went home and I worked out like a maniac, probably, you know, with more intensity than I had during any off season. And, uh, you know, and I put on quite a bit of weight and quite a bit of muscle. And um, came to spring training, got on the scale, first day I weighed 247. <laughs> and, and the other part of that was, you know, he told everybody, you know, you have a reporting weight and for every pound you're over, it, it's a hundred bucks, you know? So back then they were only allowed to find you. I don't think they were allowed to find you more than $500. Um, that was like the limit anyway. So it wasn't a big deal, but my reporting weight was 220, and I came in at 247. And I mean, he wore me out. 
you know, he's too big, he's too muscular, he's, you know, he's too tight, he's not flexible, he's, you know, this, he's that, you know, he was chirping behind my back in the, in the newspaper, and I was, you know, reading things, and well, that year, in 1982, I went out and hit 32 home runs that year, which will, which set a American League record for home runs by a catcher. So, you know, at the end of the whole deal, I mean, I obviously uh, established my point, and, you know, I, I didn't miss any games because of injury or I wasn't too tight and any of that other stuff. So when he was uh, questioned at the end of the season about the weightlifting again, he just said, well, let's put it this way. It's not for everybody. <laughs> Yeah, he had to change his tune, but it's—I mean—you were just kind yeah. of ahead of your time. Now, now look at the guys now. Well, I yeah. mean, every every single I, player is a left, gym rat. When I when I left Detroit in um, eighty in eight, at the end of the eighty six season, I came back to Detroit when I was at the end of my career trying to you know find a job, and Sparky agreed to bring me to spring training in nineteen ninety four, and when I got to spring training in Lakeland. Whereas before we had absolutely no weightlifting equipment in our clubhouse anywhere. When I got to spring training in Lakeland that year, they had a stinking gold's gym attached to the clubhouse. I mean, that was when Bo Schembechler came in and was the uh, um, general manager for a while. And when he came in, he had him build that weight room, hired a strength and conditioning coach. And uh, I mean, he wasn't there when I came to spring training in 94, but for the few years that he was there, he changed the whole um, mindset of how the Detroit Tigers trained and, um, you know, opened the concept of uh, lifting weights and having somebody instruct them how to do it. So I thought that was a big step forward. Now, as you well know, you know, you can't go in a clubhouse anywhere that doesn't have a weight room. So I, I think that, uh, you know, that, that thing came full circle. Well, I, I mean, I was resistant to it. Lance, early in my career in the early 90s, uh, you know, I started to notice more guys were starting to train and starting to work out. And uh, on those Reds teams I was on in the mid 90s, you know, I'd see, hey, you going to lift this? No, I don't lift. Why? I'm a baseball player. I don't lift weights. That was always my mantra. It, I didn't start working out till about 1999, where I just kind of had an epiphany and I thought, I want to I want to do something to I want to do everything I can. I changed my diet. I changed, uh, you know, my workout. I, I hired a trainer and my life changed. It's, it, it becomes a way of life. As, as you know, you've been doing it a lot longer than me, but I'm still, you know, now I'm 52 and it's hey six days a week. It's what we do is we go to the gym and now I've had to alter my, my, uh, workout routine now because my back's hurting, but, uh, yep. It's just the way it is. It, it's it's your way of life. I couldn't imagine though, back when you were doing it, and and it's it it is it, it's a way of life. It's what you do. The accessibility. I mean, in the minor leagues especially, but even in the big leagues, you had to be like looking for a gym, and it was maybe one of how many people on your team would lift two in in the late seventies. Well, if that, I mean, I you know, to be honest with you, there weren't too many gyms. Or did you have access to any gyms? I mean, when we were in spring training, you know, for most of the time that Sparky was there and I was there, we had a couple exercise machines. And, you know, there was no free weights, no anything. You know, there were uh, there were those machines that had, like, hydraulic pumps on them. 
You know, there was only a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. And, the, and the, one of the spring trainings, probably the spring training that, um, that I got in trouble, I, I brought down a, a Olympic bar and some weights and some dumbbells and stuff and had them put them back in a, a little room that was, that was uh, considered the, the weight room, which there was really nothing in there to do weights. It had a few exercise bikes and, like I said, those hydraulic machines. But uh, I had the grounds crew make me a bench so that I could do benches and stuff. And one day Sparky walked by there and saw me in there working out with that. And he just stood there and watched, and he didn't say anything. And then he kept walking and walked out of the clubhouse. Well, the next day when I went in the clubhouse, it was all gone. And he told our clubhouse guy, I went to our clubhouse guy, and I go, what happened to my weights? He goes, well, he goes, hey. He goes, uh, no, he goes, yeah, I need you to understand this. He goes, Sparky came up to me and told me, you take those weights and throw them out in the middle of Lake Parker. I don't ever want to see him again in this clubhouse. So he stashed them somewhere, <laughs> but I was not allowed to have them in the clubhouse anymore. And I went toe-to-toe with Sparky, and he would not relent. It was unbelievable. So, you know, over the course of time, he obviously had to do a little backpedaling and gave in. And... um at the end of the day, everybody's doing it now. But, uh, you know, back then, all I heard was, you know, Al Kaline never lifted any weights. And <laughs> never lifted any weights. And, you know, so I was like, okay, all right. That, you know, I just didn't want to hear it anymore. So I basically did things on my own, um, you know, away from the ballpark and until, uh, you know, things kind of opened up a little bit. Until <laughs> til it became politically correct to lift weights. Yeah. That well, you is know, when funny. I went to Philly after I left Detroit, you know, they had a big old weight room and Gus Heffling was their strength and conditioning yeah. guy. And, you know, I was kind of pumped up about that because, uh, you know, when we used to go on those Nike trips with, uh, you know, your dad and mom and, you know, Carlton, Steve Carlton was on there and he would always talk about Gus, all the stuff that Gus had. And I was, I was fired up to get a chance to work with Gus and he was amazing. But uh, just to, you know, Complete night and day difference between training philosophies with the Tiger organization and the Phillies. When I went to a different organization, it was like, man, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, Gus came over from Gus came over from the Eagles, I think, in the early seventies, and he was Roman Gabriel's guy. And uh, then he ended up hooking up with with Lefty and became Carlton's guy. And then my dad chimed in. You know, I, I can still remember as a little kid watching those. You can hear Gus right now. He used to chant. Go, oh, ooh, ee. I can hear him right now. And I was five years old. And that's Gus. Heffley. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Phillies were ahead oh, of their time. Classic workouts, man. That was a good time. I enjoyed the heck out of it. 79, you hit 19 homers. 1980, you won the Silver Slugger, and it's your first all-star appearance. You hit 286, 24, and 82. How uh, was that first all-star? We had a few days ago on the program, um, we had Jimmy Rollins on. And I talked about his first all-star appearance and, and he went through it. He was, he said, Brett, I was in awe. I was there. I didn't talk to anybody. I just listened. I was so appreciative. I had a similar, my first all-star game, Lance, it was like, you know, as little kids, well, for me as a little kid, I thought I'm going to be a big leaguer. I'm going to be a big leaguer. That's all I ever thought. I'm going to the big leagues. I'm going to the big leagues. I got to the big leagues and then we go through our trials and tribute and it's hard and we get, we get humble pie and, and we make an adjustment. And I remember I made that first all-star game 
and I was like a little kid. And, it can't, and I remember Barry Bonds was close to me. And I'm like, that's Barry Bonds. All I know is that I'm on the same team he is. We got voted here. Uh, <laughs> it was such a cool thing for me. Do you remember having that kind of kind of reaction when you when you the word got to you that you made your first All-Star game? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was uh, <clears throat> it was always a thrill. I never took it lightly. I I appreciated the heck out of having the opportunity to play an All-Star game. So my first. You know, I, I told you that I, um, once we moved out from Pennsylvania, grew up in Southern California, well, 1980 All-Star Game was in L.A. I mean, what better way to, you know, have your first All-Star Game, you know, set setting other than, uh, you know, play, I mean, I think it was the very first base, professional baseball game I ever went to was at Dodger Stadium because my parents, the only games that they would go or take me to was to go see the Pittsburgh Pirates when they came to town because they were both from Pittsburgh. So, you know, I got to go there a few times and uh, my dad listened to the Dodger games on the radio all the time. And my first all-star game was in LA and I didn't make it as uh, I wasn't the starting catcher, but uh, I did get in at the end of the game. And, um, you know, I faced Bruce Suter and, uh, you know, he had that split working pretty good. And, you know, I had an opportunity to do something and, uh, uh, I, you know, I just, I kept envisioning myself hitting a home run off of this guy and he hung me a split with two strikes on me. <laughs> I think I probably tried to hit it to orange County cause it was like, looked like a softball coming in and I swung right through it and missed it. And he ended up striking me out, but I was like, Oh my gosh. But, uh, yeah, it was just a big thrill. I mean, you know, all the, guys that I was around and the guys that we were playing against. And, uh, um, yeah, that was, that was amazing. And then after, I think that after that season in 1980, um, they had a, a all-star, um, two all-star teams, American league, national league, all-star teams went to Japan to play exhibition games against uh, each other as part of a, you know, an all-star tour type of a deal. So I got to go do that as well. And, you know, that was, that was big fun. I had uh, a lot of fun. Earl Weaver was our manager, uh, the American league and Lasorda was a manager for the national league. So, uh, it was a good time. I mean, they, they made it fun. I have very fond memories of that. And, you know, a couple crazy things that happened with, uh, with Earl and Lasorda. And <laughs> it, was, it was just, you couldn't, time. you couldn't have two bigger characters than those two. Oh my God. It was, uh, I'm telling you, it was, uh, it was amazing. They're both, I mean, I, there was a lot of things that happened that I remember. Um, and it, it could have only happened with those two guys. And it was, uh, it was just a, a very special time. When I look at this time in your career, pretty much the 82 to 86, I mean, that's kind of, you have some big time years. You're an all-star every year throughout those, uh, you won four more silver sluggers, uh, 83, 84, 85 year gold glover. So it's kind of the heyday. I'm looking at your numbers at 284, 32, and 87. Next year, you're driving in 114. And that's kind of the heyday of that, the, the coming together of that team that you end up winning the, winning the World Series in 1984. And I just look at the names, you know, Sparky's at the helm, and you got uh, Tram and Whitaker up the middle. You're catching, you got, Gibby, uh, you know, Daryl Evans, 
uh, Jack Morris on the Hill, Dan Petrie, who is uh, an alumni of my high school in Placentia, California, El Dorado. And I remember, you know, I remember that 84 series because everybody was talking about it. Like, oh, you know, Petrie went here. And this is before I had met Dan. But um, just just take me through those years. And, and you end up – we'll talk about the World Series in a minute. But do you ever look back with that group of guys, you know, Chet Lemon, I, I, I failed to mention there, and think you won one, but we could have done more than that. And not necessarily win more World Series, but get to more. That's a pretty good nucleus right there. Well, you always think when you have a a year like we had in 84 that you were going to be able to uh, duplicate that and, you know, maybe win two or, or maybe even three. I mean, we felt that we were that good. But, you know, I think we all came to the realization that uh, winning, number one, is not that easy. doesn't matter how good of a team you have. Um, the American League East, which there was only two divisions um, back then, American uh, League East and West, we had some pretty good teams. And I think a different team won our division every year, uh, consecutive years in a row, um, except for Cleveland. I mean, we had uh, Baltimore, the Yankees, the Red Sox, us, Milwaukee. I mean, uh, some pretty good teams and uh, some pretty good firepower. But, you know, the way that we won it in 84, um, going starting the season off 35-5, and five, which, you know, even pretty sitting here start. today in 2022 is like an amazing feat. I don't know if anybody will ever do that again. I assume it's anything's possible, but to win 35 of your first 40 games at the major league level is pretty amazing. And, um, you know, we, uh, we were wire-to-wire champions. We were never out of first place. You know, our only glitch in postseason was we lost one game to the, the Padres in the World Series. But, uh, you know, we had swept Kansas City, and um, it was just a very special year. And guys, you know, guys knew their roles. Everybody played well. Um, we thought we were going to do it again and again, but uh, unfortunately it wasn't meant to be. You know, I think we had an indication in 83 that we were going to be a pretty good team because, uh, you know, we were kind of neck and neck with Baltimore that year who ended up winning the American League East in 83. Um, it seemed like we kind of held our own against them, but you know, nobody else could beat them, and they, you know, stayed ahead of us uh, all the way through. But we always felt like, well, you know, we're there. We're, you know, we're, few additions here or there, we just, you know, take our game to the next level and, and, you know, we're going to be the team to beat. Well, you know, the Tigers went out in the offseason and picked up Willie Hernandez and Daryl Evans and, um, you know, a few other guys that, uh, you know, obviously made big impacts on our team. Rupert Jones and Rusty Kuntz, um, Billy Shear, uh, Dealing out of the bullpen from the left side, he came, you know, halfway through the season or whatever. But uh, everybody that that uh, Bill Joy picked up made a big contribution. You know, I don't think that Daryl Evans had his best year offensively that year, but he was, you know, a big part of what went on uh, in the clubhouse and as uh, was a big part of the chemistry of our ball club. You know, just a, a veteran presence that uh, 
you know, always seemed to say the right things or uh, knew what to say to everybody. We were, you know, basically a young team. And uh, he was he was a voice that we needed to have in our clubhouse. And, you know, he, uh, he did a great job that way. But it was, uh, you know, it was a, a process in the making. Um, you know, uh, in fact, Bill LaJoy, I think, uh, before he passed away, wrote a book. Um, I think it's called... Uh, character is not a statistic or something like that from back when he was scouting, you know, I guess meaning that he always tried to find players with a stronger character. It wasn't more about character than it was ability. I'm not so sure how true that is, but in his case, that's what he wrote about. And, you know, he talked about the putting together of that team, you know, the different drafts and the guys that he drafted and how they all came together. I mean, it's almost amazing when you look at, uh, you know, the team that we had, the nucleus of that team was all, you know, all through the draft uh, in a couple years span. So it was, uh, they did a heck of a job in a short period of time, you know, pulling people from all over the country to uh, make a, a team that, you know, not only went 35 and five, but, you know, ended up winning a world championship in 84. So it was a big year, a lot of fun. Um, Obviously, the only World Series that I was ever a part of, and and thank goodness that we were able to win it. Um, everybody in Michigan was uh, baseball crazy. Uh, I mean, you couldn't go anywhere that anybody wasn't talking about the Tigers, and everybody was in a good mood. And I've always commented that during the entire '84 season, every time I came to the ballpark, everybody was in a good mood. So that was always a good thing. And I think you summed it up it's really hard to win. And the fact that, that you can look back and you did win a world series, you know, you, I'm sure you've played with a ton of guys, ton of talented players that never got to win a world series. And uh, yeah. it truly is, you know, you, I don't, I don't take it for granted because I know how hard it is to win. Uh, so I, you know, I've, I've talked about it before. I see these every year when the world series is going on and whoever the winner is, you know, I just kind of look at it like, well, I hope you really savor this because man, this ain't easy. The, the Yankees of the nineties, when they want rattled off five and seven years, that's not the norm for the rest of us. It's a grind. Yeah, right. and, and if you're lucky enough to win one, it's pretty, pretty darn special. Well, especially in today's game. I mean, it's an endurance test now. I mean, when you get into playoffs, you you got to win a lot of games to be a world champion. It's like the Little League World Series. <laughs> you got to win like 16 games just to get there. Yeah. 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 And, you know, After the 80s. In 84, we had, uh, you know, the American League Championship Series was between us and the Royals. It was a best of five series. And whoever won yeah. that series went to the World Series. So, you know, yeah. compare that to now. I mean, you got a, you got wild card games and, you know, series upon series before you get to the series, and it's it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's fun to watch, but I mean, you gotta you gotta win a lot of ball games to become a world champion nowadays. After the '86 season, uh, you're an All Star again, and you end up choosing free agency. You sign with the Phillies. How was that for you? you sign as a kid, '74. You, you you've known nothing other than than you're a Tiger. That's a lot of years. Um, had to be a little bit strange for you. Well, it was. And, um, you know, it was during a time that, uh, you know, not full of a lot of fond memories for me. I mean, I, 
I had always envisioned myself being a Detroit Tiger for my entire career. And obviously I could have taken a step in that direction if I had opted to stay in Detroit um, after the 86 season. But as, uh, you know, as well documented, and I, I hate to even keep talking about it, but, uh, you know, that was the height of the collusion era. And um, I had, I was coming off a six year contract at that time. Um, in, in spring training of 1986, my agent was uh, talking with the Tigers about an extension and uh, it was actually agreed upon. You know, everything was, uh, you know, w- with the exception of my signature, um, had been agreed to and uh, was going to keep me in, in Detroit for a while longer. And then at the last minute, Jim Campbell, our uh, general manager, told my agent that they were uh, rescinding their offer. They were pulling it off the table. And I was like, what the heck? So, you know, that was very disappointing. And then I found out that, you know, as time progressed uh, into the season, that it was all part of this collusion deal. You know, some teams signed some of their players and got it contract in under the wire. I know Eddie Murray had signed an extension with the Orioles before that happened. And, but, you know, I, uh, I kind of felt like I was left out in the cold and I was, I was, you know, disappointed by that, but, you know, I went into the 86 season, um, that being the last year of my contract and was going to be a free agent at the end of the year. And I was actually having a great year. Um, I mean, my average wasn't, um, stellar. I was, uh, I don't even remember what I was hitting for an average, but I had, uh, I think, 21 home runs and uh, 60 RBIs at the All-Star break. And um, like a week or two after the All-Star break, um, I had been having issues with my lower back. And uh, one day I woke up and I I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, my back was, I was in, you know, pretty severe pain. So, um Unfortunately, uh, even though I had made the all-star team that year, I batted clean up at, you know, the all-star game in Houston, caught Roger Clemens that year when he punched out on how many guys, just about everybody he faced. <clears throat> and then uh, a couple weeks after that, I find myself, you know, on the disabled list and I, I'm, you know, at the Henry Ford hospital here in Detroit, you know, um, being diagnosed and uh, whatnot. I, I flew out to California, um, saw Dr. Watkins out there, who was uh, a renowned back specialist working out of the Joe Curlin clinic out there. And uh, he basically told me that I had a broken back, that I had a broken pedicle in my spine that was causing my spine to have a lot of play in it. And it was consequently um, pinching and irritating that nerve that feeds down, you know, as everybody that's had any type of sciatic condition knows what that feels like. But I mean, I got to the point where I, I just could hardly walk. So that was very disappointing because, you know, <clears throat> as we all know, timing is everything. And that was not a very good time for me to, to go through that. So at the end of it all, I, you know, I end up rehabbing up here and, uh, in uh, Michigan, I went to Henry Ford Hospital and uh, rehab just about every day. 
swimming in the arthritic pool and the therapeutic pool and doing all kinds of core exercises and trying to stabilize my spine. And I actually begged Dr. Watkins to operate on me because I just, you know, the pain was so intense I could hardly stand it. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. He goes, I could operate on you and, and put a pin in there and probably, you know, fix this and everything would be fine. He goes, but there's always an outside chance that if I get in there and I just happen to nick one of those nerves in your back, he goes, your career will be over. And he goes, and I don't think you want to take that chance right now. And he goes, if you'll trust me and do these exercises and do all this stuff that I tell you to do, he goes, I think you'll come out of this all right. So that's the avenue that I, I went down and, you know, it took me a while. It took me a while to, to, you know, get back to where I could move around and, and do the things that I, I, you know, could do before. But, you know, as it turned out, you know, the Tigers were playing hardball with me. They wanted to sign me to a one-year deal for same amount of money that I had made the year before, which at that point I felt like I was tremendously underpaid for what my market value was. So I just, you know, I just couldn't agree to the whole deal. It was very frustrating, and I ended up, you know, becoming a free agent and signing with Philadelphia. And I don't know if that was such a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, I, I loved my teammates and, you know, everybody that was uh, affiliated with the Phillies at the time. I mean, the fans got on me pretty good, <laughs> which I probably deserved because I wasn't playing that well. But, you know, I was coming off of, uh, you know, a broken bone in my back, and I still wasn't 100%. Um, and, and I think – playing on that turf in, in Philly might have had something to do with that. You know, the, the harder surface, it was, uh, it was harder on my back than I, than I expected it to be, and I probably should have anticipated that. But, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know how the whole thing was going to play out. But, uh, you know, I went to Philly. I didn't have, you know, a great two years there. I did make the all-star team one of the years that I was there. But all things considered, they were expecting me to come in and, put up the same kind of numbers that I've been putting up in Detroit and it just didn't happen. And it was not only frustrating for them, but it was very frustrating for me. So um, when that all came to a head, I ended up uh, um, being traded out to Anaheim. And um, you took over for dad. Dad yeah, ended up going to uh, Kansas city, didn't Kansas he? City. Wasn't that the, wasn't that the year his last year it in, was the year. in, yeah, the, his last year in Anaheim uh, was 88. Your first year in Anaheim was 89. So, yeah, it makes sense. That is correct, yeah. And, you know, the irony in that is uh, Bill Giles, who was the, uh, the owner and, and president of the uh, – one of the owners and president of the Phillies at the time, <clears throat> in regards to the collusion thing again, um, I think at that time, two years later – um, some players were going to be um, awarded a second look at free agency because of the rulings that had come down involving collusion. And, and, and I was going to become one of the uh, second look guys. So I was going to become a free agent again. Uh, I think that's the way it was going to work out. It hadn't been announced that I was, but it was looking like I was. So I remember um, towards the end of the season, in uh, in '88, uh, Bill Giles called me up into his office after a game, 
and I went up there and, you know, he had, uh, he had tipped a few before I got there and he was pretty fired up. And, you know, I was like, I didn't even know what was going on. And he, you know, kind of explained that, you know, this is what was looking like was coming down the pike that I was going to probably get my second look free agency. And he goes, I'm going to tell you right now, your agent sat right there in that chair and told me if this ever happened that, you know, you would stay here in, in Philly and you would not, you know, become free agent. And I'm looking at him like, well, I've never heard that before, you know? And, uh, I mean, the more he talked, the more fired up he got, he was working himself into a, you know, a frazzle. I was like, Holy cow. You know, so he just kept getting, making himself matter and matter. I wasn't saying a word, but you know, the more he talked, the matter he got. And I, I just said, Hey, you know, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. I said, I need to actually have a conversation with my agent and, you know, and discuss what's going on or what might go on. And um, I don't know how he, he must have taken that the wrong way. He goes, well, I'll tell you what. He goes, you tell me right now where you want to go. He goes, I'll trade you tomorrow. <laughs> so, and I'm just like, you know, wow. You know, it's like I just want to say calm down for crying out loud. But, I, you know, <laughs> when he said that, I was like, all right, trade me to Anaheim. Because, as you know, I grew I, I lived out there. Right. So I was like, I, I wouldn't mind going back home and playing. And, you know, and I didn't even, I didn't even think who was catching there. Your dad was catching there. Who, I just said, you know, trade me to Anna. Let me go home. Care. So then I walked <laughs> out the door. And on the last day of the season in 1988, they announced that I was traded to the Angels. I was like, unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, it was the craziest story. And I was like, well, you know, and, you know, that's why I ended up going out there and, and playing for a few years. I mean, I felt bad that, you know, it, it affected your dad, but he, he did okay in Kansas City. So Yeah, he went to, yeah, he was like, he was like 82 by at that point. He, he was ready to, yeah. he was ready to move on. Um, and I don't know the point where, uh, for those of you listening to the Boom podcast, uh, Lance and, and Arlen, his wife, are, have been friends of the friends of our family for a long time. I don't remember quite when. I think I remember knowing Arlen more, or, or when you guys would play against each other. Arlen was there, and and her and my mom are are really good friends. I don't really remember this, but I don't remember when you and me first met. But I do remember. I always looked at Lance Parrish like 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 a father figure. Like that's my dad's buddy. So I'm getting to that story. It's and and when I was prepping for this, I'm sitting there thinking, that's right. Me and Lance played together when I first got my call up in 1992. Know, you'd that? gone through, you'd gone through Anaheim, uh, and you were in Seattle. It's 1992. I get called up in August, and it was weird to me. I'm like. This isn't. This is weird. That's like my dad's buddy. He plays with my dad. He's not. He's not on my team. I don't know. It was weird for me playing with you. It, it might have been. Was it? Was it strange for you? I, I know we were both at different parts of our careers. You were getting towards the end of your career. I, I had my hair on fire. I was just trying to get hits and, and not get sent down. So we were in different spaces. But but I do remember that. It, not vividly, because that 92 first call-up for me is kind of all. It's just 
all jumbled up. I don't really remember it very well. Everything was going so fast for me, like it does for for a lot of us when we first get to the big leagues. We just want to show everybody that we belong and and yeah. we can play at this level. And uh, there was a lot of different things, but I, I do remember that. This is really strange that Lance is on my team. Well, it was strange. I mean, it was almost like I had been playing with my own son. Um, but, you know, at the end of my career, <clears throat> I was – it seemed like I was with a different organization every time I turned around. So when I, uh, I was actually released by the angels that year, um, halfway or so into the season. And then Seattle picked me up and I actually love Seattle. I, uh, love the city, love playing there. And then lo and behold, you popped into the picture and it was like, wow, this is pretty bizarre. Um, but it was fun. I mean, I enjoyed it. You were a good player, obviously, and deserved to be there. And after, you know, the initial shock of it all, I just took it with a grain of salt. And, you know, we, we did our thing. But, uh, you know, playing there, and I thought I was going to stay there. And then at the end of the season, I got, you know, turned loose. And, you know, it seemed like after that, for the next few years, I was in a different camp every spring and played with a few different ball clubs. And it was it was insane. But, uh you know, I met a lot of great guys and had a lot of fun along the way. I just, you know, towards the end of my career, I don't know what the deal was because, you know, it was like the kiss of death when one of the managers would uh, come up to me and uh, and say, do you like it here? And I go, yeah, I like it here. Well, you know, I, right, I ask you if you like it here because we, we want to bring you back. And I go, well, I would love to come back. And then when the season was over, boop, I was gone. I was like, don't, you know, don't tell me that anymore. I mean, it happened in Toronto, it happened in Seattle, it happened in Pittsburgh with Leland. And, uh, you know, I was it's kind of disappointing because I thought, you know, that I had at least made an impression where, you know, whoever was there wanted to keep me there. And then the next thing you know, I was out the door. So scrambling, looking for another job. But uh, And I know I, I shared this with you off air uh, the other day, but you know, for the audience, I'll tell them. And, and Lance goes to Cleveland in 93 and in 94, he goes to Pittsburgh. I'm with the Reds and another, another kind of fatherly moment. Now, what's Lance doing behind the plate? He's not supposed to be catching. That's my, that's my dad's friend. <laughs> and I told you this story the other day, but I'll tell you, I couldn't believe I was in the box and, and I had a good year that year. I think I ended up, I hit 320 in 1994 but I, I hated having you behind the plate and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, and it's like, all right, first pitch. I forget what it was fastball inside. And, and, and it's like, not only was it inside, but it was right in that perfect inside spot. Like, should I swing? Should I not swing? It wasn't like you were missing off the plate and I'm going, damn it. It felt like, like Lance and my dad are in cahoots and they've been talking exactly how to pitch me. And why is he catching and he's disrupting my whole game. He's my dad's friend. And I remember that to this day. And I, I remember calling my dad and I said, I said, dad, I said, Lance, is, Lance, uh, he wore me out tonight, you know, because typical. You call your dad. Hey, how'd you do tonight? Oh, oh for four. Because how'd you feel? I said, Lance called an unbelievable game on me. I said, they put every pitch was like the opposite of, of what I was thinking. And they changed it up on me. And uh, I was a mess. And he goes, yeah, Lance has gotten good over the years. He knows how to, he, he knows you pretty well now. And, and I always remember that moment, you know, few things stand out in my early 
in my early career, but but the fact that you were coming on the show, I said, I got a couple for Lance. Weird playing with him and weird when he was catching against me uh, when he was with Pittsburgh. But a lot of fun and a lot of fond memories for me. You finish your career uh, after the season, after the 95 season in Toronto, 324 homers, 1,070 ribbies, World Series champion. You know, we mentioned the All-Star, the Gold Gloves, and the Silver Slugger. Uh, but an awesome career. Uh, and before I let you get out of here, I, I, I want to go over the. I want to talk to you about catching, and how how later you know later in life as I moved on when I was playing, uh, even in my best years, you know I never really thought about the catching position like whatever that guys there. I've never been behind the plate in my life, uh, but I've really come to appreciate that 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 position and and not necessarily the offensive side you know that's always that's always a bonus and you were one of the best of your time off on the offensive side of the ball but handling a pitching staff uh you know the the layman will just think it's about throwing runners out well you know as well as i do they're they're going to steal bases against against the pitcher usually not the catcher so it's more about that it's about calling a game it's about coming to the ballpark and and those starting pitchers being comfortable with you go, yeah, you know, that's big. And I look at the game today and when I see a a pitching staff not comfortable with their catcher, it's really a disruption. And and the ones that are are cohesive and on the same page, man, it seems like it it, it really runs like a well, well tuned engine. And I just wanted to get your thoughts from, from the beginning of your career coming up, always being an offensive catcher. Then in the eighties, you start to win some gold gloves, how much you learned over your career uh, defensively uh, at the catching position? Well, I'll tell you, you know, catching is a, uh, it's a work in progress. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of pretty sharp guys out there. Your dad was obviously very, very good catcher, very intelligent catcher. Um, You know, I always admired him and, and, guys like your dad that uh, that had the ability to call a good game and work work a pitching staff and you know my my objective when I got into catching was to try to get on the same page with my pitcher I wanted him to be comfortable I didn't want to be the reason that he was you know uncomfortable on the mound or, or didn't feel comfortable throwing a ball in the dirt or, or you know couldn't trust my ability to call a game for him so you know, I, I tried to become uh, very observant during the game. I mean, scouting reports back then weren't really that in-depth uh, like they are now. You know, we would go over guys a little bit. And basically, all I wanted to know when we had our, our little uh, scouting meetings was who was who was the hot guy in the lineup or who were the, you know, hot couple guys in the lineup that, you know, if we got in a position where we could, you know, pitch around them or not give them anything to hit, um, those were the guys we didn't want to beat us. Um, so I, I paid attention to that. I paid attention to the little things that guys did at the plate. You know, if you were hitting and, you know, you were uh, stepping across the plate or you were pulling out, you know, in the bucket or whatever, I mean, I, I tried to, pay attention to the things that guys did when they approached the ball. So I knew whether to go in or go out. I mean, obviously good hitters make adjustments and you adjust to their adjustments, but you know, I would, I would try to 
pay attention to what they were doing. I tried to, you know, be as much help to my pitcher as I could. You know, obviously there's guys out there on the mound that they obviously they have a game plan. They know what they want to do. Um, I tried to get on board with that. Um, when they were scuffing a little bit, I tried to take over and, you know, but usually we, I just tried to get into a good rhythm and, um, you know, if, if they would trust me enough to, uh, pitch guys inside or, or stay with a, a certain approach, then, um, you know, that made me feel good. And, and, and I, I think it became an effective way to, to operate. I mean, I had my run-ins with guys just like anybody, um, you know, uh, some pitchers are very hard headed as you well know. <laughs> and, and I, Without a doubt. you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get, you know, I couldn't get through to, to some of them sometimes, but you know, there were times when I, you know, and I didn't go out to the mound that much, but when I went out there, you know, I was damn sure going to let them know how I felt about things. And, you know, uh, you know, they're the one that had the ball in their hand, but I wanted them to, to be aware of, you know, what the situation was and, you know, what we were trying to do. And, and, uh, usually it went pretty smoothly. I mean, I, I learned a lot from, from certain pitchers, you know, how to, how to work guys. And, you know, it kind of worked both ways, but, uh, you know, I had, Les Moss that I had mentioned, uh, you know, in my early years when I was coming through the minor leagues and, uh, you know, early on in my career in the big leagues, you know, he would always talk to me about, you know, pitch selection. And his thing was, uh, you know, I remember this to this day that he would always tell me, do not throw a curveball after you've just called a slider. And I, I never really understood. I was like, you know, I don't get that. Why, why not? And he said, because you've already shown uh, the hitter a breaking ball, and it's it's coming in at a at a faster speed. So why would you throw him another breaking ball that he's already seen one breaking ball, and probably he'll be able to recognize another breaking ball, and this one's coming in a little bit slower. He goes, if you're going to do anything, you know, switch it around. You know, and I. I go, okay, well, I, I guess that makes sense. So, you know, even though I, I don't know if that was really something that I would have etched in stone, but it always stuck in my head. I mean, Les said it, and I believed it, so I stuck with that for, I mean, throughout my entire career. Um, yeah, I, I can do that. So, uh, and then there were guys that, um, you know, I mean, Les Moss helped me. Bill Freehand was huge um, when I was – first starting out in the major leagues and, you know, they had had him come to spring training as a uh, kind of a tutor um, for me and the other catchers. And I had some great conversations with him about, you know, catching and how to set up and, and pitch selection and how to pitch guys and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, two great catching minds, Les Moss and, uh, and Bill Freehand. I mean, they made a, a, a tremendous difference. Plus I had Roger Craig, uh, in the dugout, uh, our pitching coach, when we won the series in 84, I always thought he was one of the smartest baseball guys I ever knew and uh, always had a, uh, uh, a unique spin on, uh, on pitching and, and pitch selection and all that. So, you know, I had some guys that uh, I was able to talk to that made a lot of sense and, you know, just, you know, tweaked my thinking along the way. And, uh, you know, obviously everything doesn't always work, but uh, generally if you stay with a, uh, the things that have worked fairly consistently uh, usually had pretty good success with that. So there you go. After, 
after your career, you, you jumped right in. The Royals and the Dodgers coaching in the minor leagues. Uh, 99-01. You go to Detroit. You're on the staff at the big club. And then you come back when, when Tiger Tram comes back um, as manager. And and uh, you coach with him there. We we hooked horns a few more times. See, I was kind of over the father thing by then. I'd grown up a little bit. I'm like, all right, now Lance is okay. Yeah. He's he's in the right position. He's a coach over there. That was fine. Then. Yeah. <laughs> um, you you dropped in the booth for a year, 2002, and uh, you managed in the minor leagues, 2006 to 2016. Currently, the special assistant to the GM with the with the Tigers. Um, do you enjoy that? Do you enjoy being on the field coaching? Do, do oh, you yeah. enjoy the minor league, big leagues? Was there a different, different things about, about different levels? Well, I love managing. I mean, I, I really enjoyed managing, you know, in the minor leagues. It was, uh, fun to be in charge. It was fun to, uh, lead a group of guys. Um, it was just, you know, for me, it was fun. I mean, everybody always talks about when they get into coaching that, you know, it's just another form of competition. I mean, you're in the dugout, you're going into battle with a group of guys. I mean, I wasn't strapping it on and going out on the field, but I had something to say about the process and how we did things and how we worked and prepared. And, um, you know, I, I uh, appreciated the opportunity to pass along things that I had been taught throughout my career uh, to the guys that, uh, that I was coaching and managing. So, you know, that was, that was a fun part of it. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I, I, when I first got done as a player, um, Sparky is the one that actually said to me, look, if you want to uh, stay in the game and coach, he goes, I would suggest to you that you do it immediately. Don't, you know, take a lot of time off and try to get back in because it, it won't be as easy as you think. So, you know, I took that to heart. And uh, I, I want to say that um, after I got out of the got out of the game as a player, your dad was the one that uh, asked me if I would help with uh, being a roving catching guy or at least make a few uh, trips into uh, Omaha and work with Sweeney because Mike Sweeney was still yeah. catching back then. Yep. And you can, I guess you can tell what, what a great job I did with him because he ended up becoming the all-star first baseman. First baseman. <laughs> so, first baseman. Yeah. But he was a great guy. And, you know, obviously uh, you could see that he was going to be successful. Um, you know, I, first base just uh, became his position other than catching. So, you know, not a big deal, but I went from there to uh, got in with the Dodgers um, the next year and uh, work with Ron Renicky in San Antonio. And actually my first year as a full-time coach, we won the uh, Texas league championship. So I was like, wow, it's pretty easy. Just jump right in and, and become a champion. But uh, you know, at every stop, you know, doing the things that I was doing, whether I was coaching or managing, you know, I just, I had a good time. I, you know, you know, you're, you're a baseball guy, you know, you get on the field, you get in the clubhouse, you just feel at home, you know, you, you make relationships with guys and, you know, you enjoy the camaraderie and, you know, the, the battle, uh, 
with with the guys and uh, it's it's just you know it's there's nothing like it it's a lot of fun um, I, I really enjoyed that. Appreciated the opportunity to do that. You know, I'm on to something a little bit different now, but uh, you know, it's all good. I'm still in the game. So, Ernie Harwell, you got anything to say? That pretty ama- pretty amazing career. The Vince Scully of Detroit. Yeah, Ernie Harwell is uh, one of the greatest people I've ever known. I can honestly say that. Um, he had one of those voices, just like Vin Scully, that captivated you. Um, obviously, I didn't get to listen to him that much on the radio because I was always playing, but uh, um, did hear a few uh, playbacks and recordings of his and uh, was impressed with his style. You know, he always <clears throat> had his little quirky things that he said on air when uh, somebody would take a third strike. He'd say, you know, and he stood there like a house on the side of the road <laughs> or somebody hit a ball into the stands, a foul ball. He would always, uh, you know, uh, say a fan from Hamtramck caught that ball or, you know, and he would always, you know, pull a city out of his hat and, you know, say that whoever caught that foul ball was from that particular city. And, you know, people always used to get a kick out of that. But when I used to do, you know, off the field things with him, uh, speaking, uh, gatherings, whatever, uh, charity events. I can't tell you how many times people would come up to him and tell him that, uh, you know, they loved him, that, you know, they really appreciated the way that he, uh, he broadcast games that they would always, when they were younger, they would go to bed and pull the covers over their head and have a transistor radio. I mean, if I heard that story once, I heard it a hundred times. People saying they had a transistor radio under the covers listening to him late at night to try to hear the end of the Tiger game when their parents told them to go to bed. <laughs> so Father's got a kick out of that. You know, but you know, a great guy was always there for you. If you ever wanted to do anything, you know, as far as uh, helping with a, a charity event or he was always, you know, more than willing to do it. I know when they uh I remember when they tore down Tiger Stadium, uh somebody had asked him if you could take anything you know, souvenir-wise, a piece of memorabilia from this stadium home with you. What what would you what would you take, and why would you take it? So he thought about it for a minute, and he goes, "Well, you know, to be honest with you, this might sound a little crazy." He goes, "But I think I would take the uh, the urinal in the visiting dugout, <laughs> which you remember is like a like a trough or whatever, you know, around yep. the corner that everybody used to." And and the guy was almost in shock. He goes, now, he goes, I have to admit, that's the last thing I would have expected you to say. Why would you pick me? He goes, well, just think about it. He goes, think, he goes, I I, I would take it home and, and make like a, a, a flower pot out of it, plant flowers in it. And he goes, but think about, he goes, that, that urinal that's in that dugout has been there since the beginning of Tiger Stadium. Think of all the great players that have relieved themselves into that over the yeah. course of time. And I thought, Shoot. you know, coming from where you are, I mean, coming from somebody else, you know, it would be, you know, I could see that. But, you know, it just made it even crazier coming out of the mouth of Ernie Harwell. You just wouldn't have expected that. But I, I got the biggest kick out of that. What are you most proud of? great announcer, great baseball guy. Loved him. What are you most proud of? I don't of? know if you knew this. I'm going to throw this at you. Did you All know... Right. 
that he was the only, as far as I know, the only broadcast only broadcaster to be traded for for player. Who was it? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. I don't remember. You'll have to Google. You'll have to Google that and find out for yourself. But I don't. I do know that when he was uh, with the Atlanta broadcasting for the Atlanta Crackers or something like that, um, he was uh, being pursued to become the broadcaster for a major league team, and, and I think the only way that they were able to pull that off is that the team had to give up a player to, uh, to secure Ernie Harwell's services. So I just thought that was, you know, that was a great little anecdote to his uh, career story and history. But I don't, I don't see, I don't remember who it was, but I'm sure if you Googled it, you'll find out. That would be a, a little uh, homework deal. little homework me. assignment. It is uh, Cliff Dapper. <laughs> Cliff, catcher Cliff Dapper. Oh, you already looked it up. All right. There oh, go. there we go. We got Dan from the top rope with the Cliff Dapper. Yeah, I, I can Google with the best of them. Lance, uh, what are you most proud of? Hey, I'm just proud that I made it. You know, I, I, I told you that I was so very naive to the whole process when I was, you know, coming out of high school and never knew if I was ever going to be good enough to to be a professional athlete of any kind. So, and you know, the funny thing is, Brett, when I was uh, in the minor leagues, I can honestly say that I, I never really sweated it out, uh, making it to the major leagues. I know a lot of guys, when they get to the minor leagues, it's like, you know, it, it, it's, it consumes them. Um, they want to, they want to be so good, so fast, and they want to make it. And, you know, I just enjoyed, I just enjoyed playing. And, um, even though at times it was very difficult and I, it was very frustrating. And and the person that coined the phrase that baseball is a very humbling game hit it right on the head because it is, and it is very difficult. And when I first got to the big leagues, I was, I was excited, but you know, I, uh, it wasn't like I was pulling my hair out on the way up trying to get there. I mean, I, I played hard and I worked hard. And when I got there, I was satisfied with the fact that, well, you know what? I made it. And the fact that I not only made it, but I played for 19 years, um, pretty amazing. So I, I'm proud of that fact. Uh, obviously, the awards and the accolades are all part of the process, and I, you know, appreciated all that. But uh, you know, being a part of the game, it is a great game, and I, I enjoy it very much. It, you know, having. Uh, Having made it to the the pinnacle of uh, of the profession was was pretty special. So yeah, that was uh, probably the proudest thing of of it all was just actually making it to the big leagues. Lance Parrish, been fun. Uh, it was great. It was great, and it was good to catch up with you. Uh, stay in touch. Tell give our Lynn my best. I will. And. Wrapping up with the Boone Podcast, what we do at the end of the Boone Podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the Boone Podcast, Dan Levy. Dan, 
That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.